Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Mum and Dad would bring me up that if I had too many conversations or sentences that started with I, my dad would say, stop right there, stop right there. It seems to me that you're doing too much thinking about yourself. You need to get out and see and think what you can do for somebody else. If you're a Narelle Fraser fan, and who isn't, you'll know that Narelle's favourite boss was her CEO at Broadmeadows, Lorraine Blackwell. Narelle talks about Lorraine a lot. She tells hilarious stories about her. She talks about the fact that Lorraine baked scones for the whole station every Thursday. But also she talks about the fact that Lorraine invented what's now known as the Sockets. They're the sexual offences and child abuse investigation teams. Lorraine Blackwell changed the way sexual assault was investigated in Australia. 
Basically, she made it more victim-focused because that's what she's always been about, which is obviously why she and Narelle work so happily together. We asked Lorraine to come and podcast with us months ago and she said no. So then we asked Narelle to go and ask her again and to tell her nice things about us and all that stuff and to tell her we promised to be on our best behaviour and eventually Narelle talked her into it. So please enjoy this special episode. Let's hear from lovely Lorraine who begins by telling us about her accidental public speaking career. I got asked to do a lecture when I was at Broadmeadows, but Broadmeadows was always busy, as you know. So, so one of the bosses come in one breakfast or one, one morning, he said, what are you doing at lunchtime? And I said, I don't know what I'm doing at lunchtime. Like, he said, do you want a free feed? Because the Rotary Club at Avesendon want a speaker and someone's gone sick. And I said, yeah, all right then, so what time? What's it for? I don't want to eat because I haven't got time. Be down there at 12.30. What do they want me to talk about? Just talk about community policing squad. Just talk about what you do, you know, because that's what, you know, blah, blah, blah. So down I go. And so they thought that was obviously well received. So would you like to speak at um, a conference that we do? Yeah, no worries. Um, well, it's going to be in Canberra. Yeah, that's fine. Um, police department won't pay for me to get to Canberra. Just let me know when it is. It's March next year. Yeah. Yep, no worries. Okay, then. Tell me the week before. Blah, blah, blah. So then the week before I get the phone call and the plane ticket and go to Canberra and all this sort of stuff. So I go to Canberra and I'm thinking Rotary Conference, you know, 40 people, 50 people, whatever. And then I stayed at some hotel and it was a Canberra Convention Centre or something. So I take a walk across and there's all these halls and there's a security guard. And I said to him, can you tell me where the Rotary Conference is? Is there a Rotary Conference? He said, oh, yeah, there's a Rotary Conference. I said, can you tell me which room is it in? So I walk into this room and there's about 300 flags and all these. And I said to him, how many people are at this Rotary conference? And he said, 1,200. I said, what? <laughs> and he said, 1,200. He said, there's a booklet. Do you want to look at the booklet? And I said, oh, yeah. So I look at the booklet and it's James Hardy talking on City 2000, Sue Stanley, the world aerobics champion, <laughs> Lorraine Blackwell, acting <laughs> inspector from Bado's flat. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> so I rang Bob Penny and I said, I'm coming home. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm coming home. I said, there's 1,200 people at this lecture. I said, like, I'm not talking to 1,200. He said, you can talk with a bucket over your head and a mouthful of rock. Don't swear. Just please do not swear. Just tell them what you do, right? And I said, I can't, not 1,200 people. Like, I just, that's too many people, you know? And he said, no, you've got to do it. So back I went, send me prayers, this goes, has me coffee. And I went across. So that's what I told them the next morning. I said, no one's to move. Because when I walked here and saw the flags, I was going home. So very lucky that I'm here. Do not move. The difference between 50 people and 1,200 people, though? I mean, you're still... Probably because 1,200... That was the first time I'd done 1,200. Yeah. And I've never done that before. And there was no difference once you start. Yeah. Because if you talk... If, you know, you talk on something you know, then you're right. Yes. Whereas my husband says you can talk on anything you could make out your life. You might yeah. get your heart surgeon and you'll suck people in. <laughs> that's it. I do. Actually, yeah, I just look confident. People are ready to... That's yeah. it. That's it. Actually, that's you it. should tell... Oh, um, uh, Lorraine and I were talking on the way in... Mm-hmm. And there was a very, very funny story that you told about, uh, you said to the bloke, no, I'm a chopper pilot. What was that story? Can you tell that one? I got the Australian Police Medal and it was the second time in Australia that someone had got the Australian Police Medal. Big deal. When I say big deal, I don't say that dismissively because now that my stepson's in the Air Force, he thinks it's hilarious because it's right up there with all these medals. He's got the big printout of medals. Oh. So suddenly his stepmother's important because the Australian Police Medal's right up there. Yeah. I wouldn't have a clue. I don't care. In that, you're not in it to get medals. So um, so the, I had to go and see the Chief Commissioner and they didn't 
um, I couldn't find out why I had to go and see the Chief Commissioner. And I panicked because I was at Broadmeadows and I was working shotgun looking after the news agency and you weren't supposed to have a second job. So I thought, someone's complained about me looking after the news agency for four weeks while they're on holidays. And I thought, oh, that's a big complaint straight to the Chief Commissioner. So I rung people I knew, no one knew, no one knew. So then I go to see Kel Glare and he gave me a letter and it had Governor General on the back of the envelope and I thought, oh, this is a big complaint. Like... <laughs> The Queen must doesn't get much bigger than that. She heard you at the Rotary Conference. So, yeah. <laughs> She's still traumatised. And um, and so so I opened it and then I read it and it said, oh, congratulations, you've been awarded the Australian Police Medal. And the first thing I thought was, oh, relief, you know. And then um, Cal Glare said to me, what's the first thing that you think of? What's the first thing that you think of? And as I said to you before about life, my approach to life is, you know, a sister dying in her sleep at 24 when you're 20. That gives you a good thing on life. And, and I looked and I said, my first thing is that my sister, who passed away, is not here to see it because she always worried about me joining the police force because she said, you lack femininity now. Like, <laughs> fancy doing a job like that. And I said, and both my mum and dad. And I said, my mum and dad, can you imagine being confronted with a kid in the country, youngest of five, never told no, lovely Christian people, and she wants to join the police force? Like, really? You know? And I said, I'm just sad that they're not here to see it. I said, but in terms of that... Metal, like it's nice that it has my name on it, um, but it's not mine because there's so many people that have made me this person, me, how I live life, how I do the police, everything. So I'm like a licensee of a hotel, so that's the sign above the door. And so I wouldn't put APM after my name. I never ever acknowledged the Australian Police Medal because I didn't want to. Because I do felt... you get it for? Is it for like one specific excellence act? and good That's service? That's what I was or thinking. Something. Okay, so it's just for your but career. You know, the thing was, and you mustn't think because I was only told, you know, not wink much. I was told years later that I was recommended for a second one, and they didn't know what to do because they said she's already got one. <laughs> Can't you have to? I'm sure they give no, two to a man. No, yeah, you're right. No. But, t- no. but tell them about wearing the medal. Oh, that, you... oh that's, so I go off the track. Yeah. So I, they put it on the thing that you had to wear on your shirt, and one of the bosses said to me, you must wear it. You have to wear it on your shirt. You have to. Yeah, no worries. Okay, so you humour people for a while and then they forget. So I wore it. And I was on night shift and I walked into Coburg Police Station. I had a driver. And when I walked in, he looked and he said, oh, boss, like, what's that medal for? And I said, flying helicopters in Vietnam. And I just walked <laughs> 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 And he said to my driver, was she really? Did she really fly helicopter? And she said, no, no, but ask her on any given day and she can do anything. So, But what, but what Lorraine was saying was that the APM, the Australian Police Medal, she didn't want to take it because it was for her. But what Lorraine believed is that it was from the people that surrounded her. It wasn't for her, it was for everyone that she'd worked with and that worked under her. Yes. Yeah. Because like I said to Narelle, for someone of Narelle's calibre to say that I'm one of her favourite bosses, that gives me whatever because I don't... You didn't do your work to be anyone's favourite boss. So for the respect and love that I have for Narelle, for her to say that, or I recently went to a funeral of a dear friend and a girl I'd worked with at Altonanor said the same thing. And she said, you're my favourite boss because you told us that you didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. But you said, I knew I'd been a sergeant and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll always have your back. And she said, and I never forgot that. And yet to get that feedback from people um, gives me warmth, but it's not about me. It was It's it's about what you do for them. Who's so, the best boss you ever had? Joan Notting. Okay, straight up. 
Jaron Notting. She's 86. She was the first policewoman ever in charge of a police station in Australia. Would be magnificent for a podcast. I love her. We visit her every six months. Four of us that worked with her at Geelong Women Police in the 70s. Um, she's now retired in the country. And every six months we get in the car and we do a road trip and we go visit her and we do, and just love her, absolutely adore her. Why was her. she so good? Because she never asked us to do anything that she didn't do. So she would work afternoon shifts, she would go and interview offenders, she would take rape statements, she would do... She never asked us to do anything. And that's why you were such a good boss as well. Because I Lorraine, learned from her. Lorraine would have a Sunday, Lorraine would often, you'd come in and Lorraine would be washing the car. Yeah. Lorraine would be um, interviewing an offender like Joan. Yeah. Um, so that was what I think was such a, a great attribute of Lorraine's is that people felt connected with Lorraine because she didn't put herself up on a pedestal. In fact, what I liked about Lorraine was I always have. I've loved about Lorraine a lot of things, but one of them is her honesty. And what would happen is if um, I came in and um, I asked her a question... And Lorraine didn't know. She would actually say, I don't actually know, Narelle, but look, what I'll do is I'll go and find out. So she didn't pretend that she knew everything. So few people in any walk of life yeah. are prepared to admit that they don't know something. No one knows everything. It's, it's good amazing. leadership. It is great leadership, particularly as a boss. I mean, I guess there must be a temptation for bosses to pretend that they do. Otherwise, they might think, well, maybe people think I shouldn't be the boss if I don't know everything. Well, perhaps I worked with so many of them that did that I thought I'm not going to be like that yeah. because they didn't know. And, and you'll get caught out. And, mm. and what is the thing? Even now, you're 64 and retired. Like if I don't learn something each day, what a wasted day. Because, you you know, I might have I have all my little great nieces and nephews for breakfast club on Tuesday, so I make them pancakes and fill them full of sugar and then send them to school. <laughs> <that's what> <laughs> because they're busy little people. So there's about eight of them next year. They're not allowed to come unless they're at school, though, because a couple of the kindergarten kids have tried to sneak in. I said, you're not coming. Um, <laughs> you have to go to school. See, so and you wonder where, I get, where yes. she used to make the scones for us, where so, that came from. So yeah. eight o'clock they come, and I just love it because they tell me about their busy little lives, you know. And so I learned from them. I learned from them because they're growing up in a world with technology that I didn't have. I know what you mean. They're growing up with, um, you know, they get in the backyard at 8 o'clock in the morning and the frost's on the ground, but they still want my husband to have races with them in the backyard. They still want to do those simple things that I want to do as a kid. So I actually learned from them. So they think they have a good time and then actually say, well, why are you going on holiday, bub? Because it's breakfast club. And I say, because I'm retired and I can, so (laughs) shut up or I'll go for two weeks instead of one. And we have a laugh. But it's that, yes, so I learned from them. Because they're growing, you know, up in a world that I don't necessarily um, envy. Yeah. Um, and so I like to teach them to speak. So if they come to my house, they must sit at the table to eat and drink. And if they get up and move, then their food and drinks put away and they don't get it back. Because yeah, you don't walk around my house eating and drinking. Yeah. Now they just automatically come and we all sit at the kitchen table because that's what we do. Because that's what you do. And you don't put your phone, or I'll jump on it because it doesn't yeah. happen. And you wonder why you're we not were that scared. Important. Working under Lorraine, <laughs> yeah. like you can see now. Yeah. But see, like it's a that, but that's that's but a boundary. Scared. Yeah, it is. But so you know, never never scared that anything unfair was going to happen no. or anything. But, no. but you know, you've got high standards, Absolutely. and they must be met. But gee, it must be a wonderful feeling when you get praise from Lorraine when you know you're doing well. <clears> and <throat> did it ever happen? Yeah, a lot. Well, there you go. What a beautiful but, feeling. But that's what was one of the many things that was so great about working. Like, it was, it's not easy working in the police no. force. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you see and a lot of stuff you have to deal with. But to go back to the office where Lorraine was, it was like 
I was just going to say something very... Uh, it, it's like, I don't know, a child going back into the womb, sort of. Like, it was just so lovely and warm. And Lorraine, you know, when I talk about my PTSD, um, Lorraine and I were talking about that in the way on the way in. And uh, the bosses that I had didn't really sort of see. They didn't notice. But with Lorraine... Lorraine would know that you'd been to a tough job or she'd say, gee, you're not looking, you know, come in, let's have a cuppa or whatever. But that was the sort of thing. That's why Lorraine was such a good boss. She was very um, um, intelligent in that emotive sort of Emotional stuff. intelligence. Ab- yeah, that's what mm, we were Very important. About. And, in fact, I was saying to Lorraine this morning, um, Lorraine come to see me uh, do a talk at um, Mooney Ponds Rotary or something. Yeah, yeah, probably. And tell them, uh, and when, and Lorraine came because she wanted to hear me talk, but tell them what you said about. When I, be, I, I became really angry. I was really angry at the end of Narelle's presentation, and Narelle picked up that I was angry, but I was actually even too angry to talk about to her while well, I was angry. Mm. And I went home and spoke to, you can imagine what my husband has to put up with, no wonder he's so quiet, the poor bloke, but because no, I was still is. angry when I got home. And I said to him, and he said, I had it in Narelle's presentation, and I said, wonderful, I loved her, but I'm just so angry. I'm so angry because the, no one looked after her. Yeah. When those things were happening, like I'm sick and tired of people ticking boxes. I've always, I hate boxes being ticked. You can tick all the boxes in your life, but you're not looking after people. You can put all the money you like into stuff, but you're not looking after people. That comes from people looking after people. And to listen to Narelle, it was just, I was just infuriated that there were all these signs of, of what was happening to her and they just kept on piling her with work yeah. because she's a great worker and she did it, she did it well and she got it done infuriates me. I know and what so you mean because the things that, that Narelle talks about, you ugh. think, how did anyone think that she would be okay? I mean, it's such an intense workload emotionally. I'll never forget, people always talk about you spending three days grading mm-hmm. child sex abuse material, mm-hmm. video and stuff. Um, who can do that? Nobody, nobody, I would not expect anybody to walk out of that room okay. But who asked you if you're okay? Yeah. Who asked you when you if you were okay when you did it? Like that's that's it's just I could never... another day on yeah. there. And so job. that's where, like, with as we said, I've, I didn't, I never towed the line. I've never towed the line. And people will like me or hate me, but I don't particularly care what they think because I will do what I think is right and right for somebody else. I was brought up. Mum and Dad would bring me up that if I had too many conversations or sentences that started with I, my dad would say, "Stop right there, yeah. stop right there." It seems to me that you're doing too much thinking about yourself. You need to get out and see and think what you can do for somebody else. Now, get out and then come back. People now would say, oh, whereas that was a great grounding for me. And and so why didn't someone say to Narelle, why didn't someone say, well, you need to now have the next couple of days off? What? Because also you maybe know? I was a great pretender because mm-hmm. I often think about that and I think to myself, I can't say I blame my bosses because I think... You know, somebody might say, oh, how'd you go down in Melbourne? Oh, fine. Okay, so what's what's on tomorrow? You know, you'd ignore the fact. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, you, you, would... you would ignore the fact because, as you were but saying, Lorraine, right, that's but the I sort wouldn't. of worker you are. But because yeah, it's you your behaviour. You need a superior to say, no, yeah. Narelle, yeah. you need a break. And that's what you have to have in management. Yeah. Like, for me, like, with, with some of the stuff that I have, not difficulty, but, like, there's never been there's never been gender stuff for me. So if someone sort of said, oh, you know, whatever, because you're a woman... 
I've never thought like that. I've never ever thought like that. But I was never told by my parents I couldn't do anything because I was a girl. It was because I wasn't strong enough or I didn't know how to do it. There was, It never really came into it, what my gender was. When we were speaking um, before in the cafe, I found it really fascinating what you were saying because... In my mind, you think, oh, in the 70s, it would have been really shit for no. police women. But what did I'm you say? that you had a female boss, boss already in yeah, job. That's, yeah, that's the thing. So there was plenty yeah. of women in... Oh, my word. Yeah, yeah, okay. Get those women together. It's fantastic. They yeah. didn't have uniforms. They didn't... Like, you know, you talk... Like with the boss, the boss worked in a day where I think she went into Russell Street one day on a Friday and was told that she'd start at Mildura on the Monday. Can you imagine doing that now? No. Oh, you but got you the weekend it. to pack up yeah. and get up there. And away you go. But, but tell, tell us... It. Tell us about the um, the seventies when you first started and how you're accepted as a policewoman because Em and I were both. Like, I couldn't what? believe it. Yeah, I'm well, imagining cop shop, you know. And I yeah, think oh, no. it's all sort of sexually, go and make the coffees. Love. Yeah, sexually charged, yeah. and there's Dull. a lot of yeah. No, I, and again because it's me, somebody else could be yep. sitting beside me and say, Lorraine, you got it all wrong. Well, that's okay. I'm only talking about me. So, you know, you went. I went to the academy in the 70s and I said to Narelle, it was only ever going to get better because for the first time in my life I had running hot water. Like I grew up with no electricity, no running hot water. So you get to the police academy and you've got running hot water and a shower. Like life doesn't get better than that. So you have 20 weeks of that and there's prep. You could have gone to jail and had an even better time. I mean, then they'd give you a bed as well. No. 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 Not for this. But, but anyway, but so, so it was only – and it was what I'd always wanted to do since I was 13. I want to join the police force, you know, don't want, to, don't want to have kids, want to join the police force, want to do this, and here it is, 20 weeks in there. And so it was, you know, welfare studies and all this sort of stuff and then, um, you know, graduating, um, you know, out there and just because you had a specific task, you look after women and children, so you were appreciated and respected for what it was that you did because you did it and you did it well. Is that what you asked me? So I yeah. go off the track yeah. all the time. So, and so was there sort so of there a wasn't... feeling among the men that, that you were really important for that reason? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, because it was something to do with a woman and a child and they'd ring the police woman. So that's back in the 70s. I don't find that any great drama. I don't Like now, if I was looking after a baby and something happened, I'd probably call one of my nieces because I am a bit uncomfortable with the care of a small, tiny baby. Like it's the behaviour. Like sometimes we attach things to things rather than the behaviour. Yeah. So my nervousness around looking after a small baby is my nieces and nephews know that I won't look after them if I if they have to no if when they can eat themselves I'll look after them. Yeah, and the toilet trained and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Because that's me being a bit uncomfortable. So with with being in the police force or women doing things or men doing things, mine was just sort of the behaviour. Like that behaviour is not acceptable. So I had women who did unacceptable behaviour. So there's men who did unacceptable behaviour. So for me, it's not who does it. It's just, and then if you look in those days, there's about 300 policewomen and how many policemen? Well, statistically, like do the maths. I have a great friend who's a clinical psychologist who laughs. He says that for 40 years you've been saying to me, do the maths. Well, do the maths. If you've got 10 times as many men as what you have women, you're going to have 10 times as many comments from blokes as you are from women. So it's, I've always concentrated on the behaviour rather than... Person or the gender, and you never resented having certain duties uh, put to you because you're a woman. That never bothered you. No, because I was never told I got them because I was a woman. I, did, I didn't. But the whole women and children stuff, like that, you because Narelle's spoken yes. about. Oh, I reckon we do it better. Yeah, like I'd, I'd grown up with a mum. Like we always had. Well, my memory is, I remember a woman in the local town having postnatal depression. We had her baby for some months. We had there's a woman who was in a psychiatric institution. We had her children for a month or so. There's a woman who had a stroke. We had her children for, yeah. so, 
my parent, you were accepted for what you did best because some things you do better. And your mum was a great nurturer. She was that lady in yeah, town. And so was dad. Yeah. I learned just as much from dad. I learned very much from dad in terms of dealing with people and very much standing up for yourself and... Like, I've never towed the line. Yeah. I've never towed the line. And, and just, if, if that's unacceptable, that's unacceptable. And, but, and Lorraine, where does, that, where does that change? Because I used to get the shits when somebody would say to me, if I'm doing an interview um, or I've, I've got a, a woman and some children, sorry, if the detectives used to get the women and children and they'd want to interview the husband, they'd say, oh, uh, they'd ring downstairs where I was and they'd go, oh, can you look after a couple of kids while I do an interview? And that used to infuriate me because I'd think, hey, you've probably got more kids than I have or somebody else in your, another detective. They all had kids down there. I didn't. And I used to really get offended that they would use, yeah, use me as a a babysitter. So where does that change? Like I felt offended and you feel it's a good thing. Do you get what it, yeah, it didn't does... bother me? Because I think, well, if you don't want to take the effort and look after them properly, I'd rather you not look after them. So I've always been driven about children feeling safe. I know it's not a perfect world for children, but if there's anything that's driven me, it's that children have the right to be safe. It's not a privilege. It doesn't depend on who you're born to, where you're born or where you live. It is your right to be safe. And so if you've got someone who doesn't look after a child, well, I don't care what it is, I'd rather step in and look after that child because the child shouldn't have to be subjected to how you feel. And, and everyone likes to think they're busier than everyone else. You know, it's like with people with phones in cars. Like, if you're that important to have a phone in a car, you've got a driver. Like, get over yourself. You know, you can sit in the back seat and make your phone calls. But, you know, you've got to put into perspective about how important you are in the scope of life. Tell, so the, tell the story about the little baby that you were telling me on the way in about um, the little baby that was taken off the mother um, because... Uh, you know, or can you or can't you? Oh, well, I can, but... It, oh, well, but it's. Do you mean for moral danger? Yeah, like just. No, I just mean how the the mother isn't um, held to account. The child is taken off the mother because the mother is the one that's playing up, and she's got five different husbands in eighteen months, or five different partners in eighteen months, and the mother doesn't get. Um, in trouble by the police, the little baby gets taken off the mother. I mean, I understand what... Am I saying that right? Yeah. What's hard to explain is that now, like at Mayo, you feel like a bit of a dinosaur because I've had 40 years in dealing with child protection, family violence. So I had 25 years with Victoria Police. That finished in 2000. Then had 15 years with Department of Health and Human Services in child protection because I've always, always just been... Just ultra-passionate about that mm. things safety. being right, that mm. safety stuff. So it's not about... It's about safety and that it's their right to feel safe. And so I'm also aware that I've always felt a lot different to a lot of people. So people now talk about emotional whatever, whereas I have someone who said to me a few weeks ago, there we go, Blackwell, how many years ago did you say? No-one's taken notice of emotional. We're all hooked on sexual, physical and whatever. Yeah. What about the emotional? What about the damage that we put into people by what we say? And so then suddenly it all comes about... You know, family violence in, in the 70s, it, family violence has always been. And and thinking of working in, a, in women police division, it was like getting a sponsor for someone who's going to listen. You know, it's family violence, but it happens in a family. You know, it's, but it happens in a family. But then if you can get someone who's interested and it carries votes or you can build an industry out of it, away you go. And it gets grounding and away it goes. People think I'm cynical. I'm not cynical. That's the way that it is. We have now, what, more resources and money going into family violence than ever before. But now we've come up with the words. Um, what do I say? Yeah, what are the great words now that are driving me crazy? Yeah, um, um, moving forward. No, not no, moving, moving forward. Moving forward and awareness. 
We're raising awareness. Raising awareness. Not doing anything. Yeah. yeah. I always but think that when awareness. I write it in a speech for work yeah. or something, I think raising, raising awareness. awareness. Well, what do I mean by that? When someone said that. And I said, so can you, oh, well, we have these primary interventions. So can you tell me about your primary intervention? So a lot of people have the rhetoric, but they don't have the mechanics. And, and that's what people get away with because people don't ask the next question. So raising awareness, then how come we all haven't got the Neil Danaher template that raises money, raises awareness, and all the money doesn't go into administration? and go in other outside sort of stuff. How come we can't adopt the Neil Danaher template to everything that we're doing with sexual assault, family violence and all that? I can hear people in the background saying, but there'll be people looking after their wages, driving around their cars and raising awareness. I can raise awareness about a lot of things. Doesn't mean I'm doing anything. Yeah. So yeah, well, we raise a lot of awareness yeah. here, but it doesn't, yeah. you know. It's not, no, but you know, honestly, like, people learn anything. a lot from this podcast. Oh, I didn't know this and that. But you're quite right. So what? Then what do we all do about it? What's then the next step? It's up to all of us then to take our part of our responsibility, isn't it? And Who gets to... your hands dirty? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. And who pushes our politicians? Why do you think all of a sudden family violence became an issue that everyone wanted to pour funds into? What changed? Um, well, I remember years and years ago in Broadmeadows, and I don't remember his name, which is probably safe for him. But I would be very passionate, though, wouldn't I? I, mean, I, I would think boss, it is a safe. A, it is safe. It yeah. is probably safe. Yeah. We had a some of the things. We had a boss. The chief superintendent was the boss. And when he went on holidays, he would call me in and say, Blackwell, people, Blackwell, Lorraine, whatever he'd call me, can you tell me what I've approved in my absence? Because I don't want to go into a meeting in town. <laughs> because he'd gone into town one day to a meeting with command and they'd congratulated him about something that I had in place at Broadmeadows and he didn't know anything about it. <laughs> so he's the best man. Oh, he's a gorgeous See, man. See, and again, though, and that's okay with you. See, my ego goes nuts when that sort of stuff happens because I think, oi, 
That was me. Oh. That wasn't old, mate. No. I came up with all that no, stuff. No, no. That doesn't worry you? No, 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 it must never be about you. It must never lose sight of your ego. Yeah. You lose you lose the ability to do or achieve anything if you lose sight of your ego. Yeah. So um, so I tell him what we've done. And then he later said to me, I, I got to the stage really that I would say to the other bosses, um, look, if she wants something and it's legal, just give it to her, keep her out of my office. <laughs> What about it was always, you know, if 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 you said to a superior even, can I see you for a minute in my office? That was always very bad news for them. Yeah. And the other one was tell him to take his head out of his ass and have a good look around because yeah. yeah, the, the sun will still shine tomorrow. Yeah. And it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it really does. does. <laughs> Pull your head out of your ass. Isn't it terrible? <laughs> it's wonderful. It's a terrible thing to say. But you know what? No. Put it into a bit of perspective. Because yes. my dad used to say, You feel sorry because your shoes are worn out. Well, wait till you meet the man with no feet. So that's I grew up with that sort of stuff. It's it's I grew up with that, you know. Dad'd say, you know, don't argue with a fool because he's going to beat you every time and you're going to waste your time. Yeah. So you know, and don't let a fool say it twice or he'll think he's right. So it's you know all of those things. Just... <laughs> what does your dad do for a living, by the way? You know what? He only went to about grade three or four. He was a labourer. He worked um, shift work at a local paper mill, and. Um, but just a great He's philosopher. Just a good man. Great man. It's all that values, of, family yes, values, yes. isn't it? I I think now, there's that word I, my mum and dad were years ahead of their time. I honestly believe that now. And I think in terms of watching in, in the police force, like with our detective at Broadmeadows and stuff, that was 25 years before Victoria Police formalised it. That's sensational action, isn't it, really? And so... <laughs> You know, with this sort of stuff where I think there's no excuse for that. There is no excuse for not offering people the best service. Mm. So it matters not to me, and it never did, about politics, politicians or anything like that. It is about you providing the best service that you can for the people that you should. And on the basis of what vote they carry or anything like that, uh, I just I shake my head. You know, like this week, you know, oh, the child protection system's broken. It's been broken for 40 years. Mm. Yeah. So, and can I fix it? Yeah, absolutely, I can fix it. You know, I can fix it because it is a criminal offence not to look after your children. It is a criminal offence not to protect your children. So you're talking about heavier penalties. Is that what you think? I don't like children being subjected to a child protection system. Parents should be put on orders. Why do we put a child on an order? If you put a child on an order because of behaviour, again, we go back to that behaviour. We, the the behaviour where a child is not protected belongs to the people who are supposed to be protecting the child. It's so not the child. Why is the child on an order? We're very interested in those issues yeah, about so, you know brain oh, development and stuff yeah. when kids aren't looked after properly. I'm just researching Cody Herman at the moment. Uh, yeah, the young man who murdered Aya Masawi in Bandura. And yes, his childhood was just awful. He and his sister were admitted to hospital with scabies when he was 18 months old and their teeth rotted and they had intestinal problems. And so, yes, I'm really, we're, we're both really fascinated in why do you think it is that, that governments, that, that funding isn't going into this information that we have now that's very clear cut, that the way a young child grows really affects their brain, affects their ability to um, empathise and can create violent monsters, terrifying people. Because pouring money into things doesn't fix people. Pouring money into things doesn't fix things. You've got to have the people with the right motivation who are either rearing these children or teaching these children or doing things with these children about what's right or wrong. So Most if their parents aren't, aren't doing it, what, what do you suggest? What can we do as a society? What, what can, we, can we put in place for these children that isn't there now? 
Well, I probably would have back in the in the eighties when they changed it. So when I first joined the police force, it was a dual track child protection system. So police were able to issue protection applications, and they had a role in child protection. Justice Fogarty did a report. It became single track, nineteen ninety one, and um, then. Um, Department of Human Services, Community Welfare Services became responsible and police no longer issued protection applications. So there for me was a big change in how things were being done because I have always been passionate that it's not a social offence not to look after your children, it's actually a criminal offence. And so what do we do with people who commit criminal offences? We try to rehabilitate them or we try to do something, we try to treat them differently. Um, And also like with family violence, I've always concentrated on the adults. I think for 30 years I've said, well, when are we going to start listening to the children? You may say goodbye to a couple of generations, but when are we actually going to ask children about what makes them feel safe? And so, and people would know in policing or even in child protection, whoever speaks to the children, whoever takes the time to speak to children and say, when do you feel safe? What makes you feel safe? And so that's why I've always, um, back in the 70s, going to domestics, um, I've worked with spoke to a man who said, I remember you and I remember you because you always did things differently to everybody else because we would go to a domestic, knock on the door and when the door opened you'd say, where are the children? Mm. You didn't even speak to the adults until you found the children. And I said, no, and is that because do you remember that we found them under beds, in wardrobes, in all different places hiding? Mm. Because the Ks are, oh, no, they didn't hear it because they're asleep. So it's... it's it is, it is fixable, yeah. but it's, it's listening to the right people. And, and so, it's attitude. Is that what you're saying? It's focus. It's about being just a more child-centric focus. Yes. Yeah, but actually be fair income when you say it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say it, but then, you know, say it and what you're putting in place is addressing the needs of the adults. Say it and address the needs of, of, of the children and what, what's going but, to but make them But how do you safe. get around that? Because the only time we do ask kids about when do they feel safe and whatever is when we are alerted to a, a situation and we might go to the school and we get the kids separated, we go and speak to the kids, tell me, like we get a report that the kids are being maltreated, for instance. We go to the school and speak to the kids, right? Where do we... And that's because a situation has occurred. But how do we get to them before that situation occurs? Because most of us have children in our lives, so it's going to depend very much on the calibre of the adult in children's lives, isn't it? So and what I hope have you not, got when you Cody's, when you yeah, Cody yeah. with his parent? Like, but if there's somebody in Cody's life who says, "What will make you feel safe? How do you feel safe?" And see, a lot of it, if you think back with child protection or you think with children, I don't recollect children wanting to be removed from parents, no. even with sexual assault. Yeah. But they want the behaviour to stop. Mm-hmm. And how do you stop behaviour? And so then, what rings in my ears is, you know, my mum saying, "You want to have an argument with someone? Tell them about their children." And you actually yeah. look and watch the interaction of some people, mm-hmm. you know, with children. Now, if people watch me perhaps with my great nieces and nephew. It is very blunt, but I love them with all my heart. Yeah. But I will often be, I will say to them, so did that make you feel so? How did you feel when that happened? Yeah. That's I'm, not hard for people to say. It's not. It I'm very blunt with my kids, but, yeah. um, and I think my dad was probably similar to yours in a lot of ways. So I was raised similarly maybe, but. I never stop to ask them how they if they feel safe. I never oh, think I of that. Yeah, no, it's a, I should. Yeah, that, I mean, even that in and of itself, if we could learn that. But when you say, and in saying that, I do. I grew up out of town, so at an early age, we were a couple of miles out of town, and the Hume Highway was, and the railway line. 
So I wanted to walk into the swimming pool. Yeah. I wanted to engage with the kids I went to school with. So safety was very much, for me, an issue from the time I had nothing to do with bad men in overcoats. or It was about safety. And so that's, you know, when some things where you have the argument about, oh, is this safe or is that safe or this is where I always go back to the behaviour because it may be your right to do all of these things. You have to ask yourself if it's safe. Yeah. So I don't get on the bandwagon of I should be able to do this or whatever. Do I feel safe? Oh, this is interesting. Yeah. So are you, you're taking us into the territory of yes. uh, women walking through a park at night. Oh, golly, there you go. Night. See, I deflect it. I'm, no, I'm no. conflicted about it because I have a 13-year-old and yes. she's in her first year of high school and she gets public transport. Mm-hmm. And I found myself saying to her things like, and I think it's sensible advice, right, don't wear your earbuds in when you get on the train. Just don't yeah. go in two stops and stuff. Um just be aware, be aware. Because I can remember going, um, I used to get the train, I lived in London for a while and you've got to have an awareness. And I used to like to walk at night and do this stuff and my dad and mum used to say, don't do it. And in the back of my mind, I actually think, yeah, I don't want her walking at night, late at night. I don't think there's a woman, a mother, a feminist mother alive who doesn't have this conflict with her own daughters where she thinks, yeah, I get it. We should all have the right to go everywhere and do whatever we want as women. But we just don't. Uh, I don't feel like we do realistically, so I'm going to give you the same advice I was given as a child. But having worked with kids, what do you think about this argument that if I say to my daughter, Dali, do not ever get so drunk at a party that you don't know what's going on, you could be sexually assaulted, then it actually happens and she feels like she can't tell me because I've told her a hundred times not to do that and it happens. What do you think about that conversation? It's all about your behaviour. Again, it goes back to the behaviour and what you find acceptable and what you find safe. I probably, I think my stepson would be a good one because he grew up with, with me. His dad was in the police force, I was in the police force and in child protection. And so he was exposed to things and, and situations and being aware of information that people possibly were. But certainly when he got to the age of 12, I said, I'm not telling you what to do anymore because you need to go out in that world and you need to discover for yourself. But understand this, you will cop with the consequences. So when he's 14 or so and says, can I take a couple of strongbow, you know, to the football party? Well, what do you think? Mm. Well, what do you think? Well, I'm not going to tell you. What do you think? Consequences, yeah. And so he did that. So what I find interesting coming back to me is then he said to me, um, when we were talking about it, he said, you're very, you're hard. And he said to me once, you're harder, you're much harder than the other parents, you know, from school. I said, well, go live with them. Mm. I I said that to my daughter. You don't have to stay. Go live with them. Um, Because I'm not going to change. Because what I do is because I love you. I don't want you to be the best. I want you to do the best you can. And I want you to be as safe as you can. I'm only trying to teach you. Um, And the day that you feel that you need to break those bonds, knock yourself out. And, um, and, and, And I wasn't scared by the fact if he said, well, I'm going to go and live with... My mum. I said to him, well, you, you'll only do that once because it's only natural you'd want to live with your mum. Mm. But you'll only go there and come back once because you won't be going backwards and forwards depending on whose rules there are because the rules won't change. Yeah. So what was interesting was that then he said to me, um, you know, when I got to 16, 17, if I had have said to you mainly or, or dad, this is what I'm going to do, and you said, no, you're not, he said, I would never have argued with you because you'd never told me no. You'd never told me not to do anything. You had always spoken to me about the behaviour. And like a friend of his was, you know, climbing out the window, you know, walking streets. Well, you know, a lot of kids do that. So I said to him, you know, do you ever feel inclined to do that? I think he was about 13. And he said, oh, no, not really. I said, because if you do, let me know because I'll open those electric gates for you because I don't want deceit in my house. I don't want deceitfulness. So if you want to walk the streets at 2 o'clock in the morning, knock yourself out, I'll open the electric gates. But understand, I'll also open them to let you back in. 
And if that means that you sleep out on the footpath because I'm asleep and don't hear you ring the doorbell, then so be it. I'm, now, I'm people copying would this say, No, but totally. people would say, oh, you know, would you do... Well, what is the difference? Because that's what I would have done. Yep. Because and, and, and because the other kids sneaking so out and walking the streets sounds exciting. Yeah, and, and kids will do what they're going to do dependent on who they are, their modelling, their, all of that other stuff, isn't it? So when it boils down to this conversation of do you want to walk the streets at 2am, there's so much else that's gone into yeah. it by then. Yeah, and it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make no. me right. Nothing I say is right. And I think there's a person once said to me, I come to you for advice because you give it, but you inevitably start every time by saying, I can only tell you what worked for me. Mm. I've got no intention of telling anybody else that this is what they should be doing because everybody else should know their own children because what works for one child won't work for another child. And you want them to talk to you. Like I've been having discussions, um, you know, asking about alcohol, like, oh, when when could I start maybe drinking? I mean, I'm like, Jesus, but I've got my own experience of that and I've just had to be really honest. I'm like, I can't say don't drink. Obviously, I said, you're not going to be drinking under my roof until you're older, but I've had my experience. I don't drink today because of that stuff. And I've said, well, this is what I found, you know, this is what could happen. And it's kind of scary because I feel like sometimes I'm having these really frank discussions with my daughter, but I feel like I've got to. Like the world, my parents did, you know, maybe not to the extent, but I always knew kind of about stuff and I, I don't know, it's just scary, but... In your experience, what do you think about that, about having frank conversations with children? Do do you find that it can make them feel unsafe if you share concepts with them? Or I'm not expecting you to be... Like consent, even consent and stuff, like saying, you know, even with my 10-year-old, age-appropriate consent, they talk about that now. I'm just like, if you feel uncomfortable, you know, about the way someone treats you, let us know. It's hard, though. Because I told my kids about porn and they were a bit... They were young, but I thought... But well, kids are seeing porn at 10 or something now, yeah, they reckon. Online. Yeah. I've always had those conversations. I don't, and I know my niece wouldn't mind. She, you know, her children inevitably found the book, you know, that was in the brown paper bag. I said, why would you do that? Bring out the book and read it with them. Because if, if children ask questions, you give them an age appropriate answer, away they'll go because they've got busy lives and they'll be doing something else. Children <laughs> are only interested in what's hidden. <laughs> they've got busy lives. They love it. Christmas yeah. presents. That's, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? True. Like, it, it, yeah. if you've got a 12 year old who's going to read a pornography magazine, put it on the coffee table because chances are he'll be so embarrassed mum's looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> That'll Does that work? Who, I, I don't, I don't yeah. know, but I've always been very. Frank, I think with working with with sexual assault, absolutely, always yeah. been frank, always been frank about you know sexual activity and um, well, yeah, because drinking and alcohol. Narelle's and, told yeah. us about you know interviewing an elderly woman who'd been raped and having to have these incredibly frank conversation. Um, she couldn't even use the word vagina, you know. She'd point down and yeah. like it was just so awkward. But you have to do that. I guess that gives you a sense of well. I'm going to have this conversation. I... Because if I'm awkward talking yes. about it, so yeah. is she going to be. And you can't be shocked, like you're saying, Lorraine, with the kids with the porn, instead of put that away. You're not supposed to look at that. You just put it down there and, as you say, they probably die of embarrassment before anything. Yeah. But I've always been very open, you know, and used the word penis for John. Yeah, I always taught my kids that, yeah, Yeah. just use the right word for it. There's nothing wrong with using those words. But then again, when the kids come in and they use the word, say, whizzer, right? (laughs) Um, Look, there was, gee, there's some funny words, you know, that the kids use, um, like my mini. So what you've got to do is you use that word so that they feel comfortable 
but some of the words they use for... Oh, it's my a- peanut. I know, I know a little boy who calls it his peanut. <laughs> so, but I mean, I understand what you've got to figure that out sometimes, don't you? When it's really important saying who touched your where, yeah. you need to know exactly what a person means Absolutely. by peanut. So, what you do is so with the whizzer, you know, you'd go, um, so what's another word for a whizzer? Right. And then they'd say, Oh well, it's you know where you we from. Well, tell me where you. So yeah. you get them to explain it, so everyone knows what it means. Yeah. What do you use it for? What yeah. else do you use it for? Yeah. And you're going to have embarrassing moments. My son asked me one day if a lady had a vagina in front of us at Coles. Just straight out, has she got a vagina? <laughs> you know, you get, we're going to have those moments, right? But at least, <laughs> or gina. He didn't say vagina, of course, because he was about three. Has she got a gina? But everyone in Coles knew what he meant. Gina. <laughs> Yeah, and I had to look at this poor woman who turned around and looked at me and I had to say, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, when the first period comes, we, we talk oh, a lot yes. about, um, I remember what, what I said to my daughter, look, you know, you can talk to, she goes, what if I get it at school or yes. what if you're not around? I said, well, you talk to dad or talk to, because my husband's a nurse and he goes, I've looked after many women who've had their periods, you know, and my dad, used to get my dad to go out and get pads and stuff. Yeah, you've got to be open. Yeah, you just... Before we run out of time, can we talk about the socket, please? Because I'm working on another podcast with a woman who is a an incest survivor. Her story is just terrible. And now she's 50 years old now and uh, she's recovering for the first time in her life. And she talks so much about the socket, about all the services that she has received. And did you invent the socket, Lorraine? Yes. Tell us, what does SOCKET stand for? Talk, talk. Well, now I think it stands for Sexual Offence and Child Abuse Investigation Team. Okay. So when I joined in the 70s, children and women taking sexual assault statements and it would go to a CIB division. So depending on where you worked, there could be any number of CIB divisions. So when I was working in Geelong, there would have been two CIB divisions, Geelong, Norlane. Go to Altana North, there would have been Footscray, Williamstown, Sunshine, um, you know, I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. And so what you do is you're working in that field and thinking, hang on a minute, the statement is taken here, um, Women Police Division, Community Policing Squad, and then it goes out of this office um, to be investigated. So depending on how busy those other offices were, often was resultant in what type of response there was. So then I went to the Sexual Offences Squad um, where there was designated... um, Females taking statements from victims of serious sexual assault um, and incest and associated matters. And so then that was all over the metropolitan area. So going a step, by the time I got to Altona North, I thought, no, there's got to be a better way. There has to be a better way because we need to have where a person comes to one office, this is where you make your statement, this is the person who took your statement, he's the detective who's investigating it and you only have one phone number to ring. So there was great supportive bosses. I've always had supportive bosses. So there's great supportive bosses there that I, I supported or I spoke to about the idea, who thought it was a terrific idea, and then I was transferred on promotion to Broadmeadows. So I waited until I'd settled in there and then brought up the same idea with the bosses there who were just as um, approachable and supportive. And so that's what we had, was a detective um, and then later two detectives attached to the community policing squad and we just called it the Sexual Offence Investigation Team to give it a name, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. But it was actually back in 1991. Mm -hmm. 
So I think then some years ago, let's all get on board and let's try it. And, um, you know, there we have it. Yeah. So some things can be slow moving. But it's it, it doesn't – you must be thinking all of the time. I've always, always been driven about the best service for um, the people that you're dealing with. And I think at, at Broadmeadows or anywhere – um, I would walk in as the officer in charge and if there was someone who was being spoken to, I'd say, you're aware of what's happening. Can you explain the um, the process? And if, if it was someone who couldn't explain the process, then certainly I would call someone in and say, this is how it is. We're not a production line. People need to know what's happening. They need to be able to ask questions. You can't you know, because you're doing this all of the time. So it was always just looking for ways to improve it. You're so right. So, Even if you go through the hospital system, you find yourself there with a, a relative. It does always feel like, oh, okay, I get that you all know everything that's happening because you work in it every day, but we're confused and frightened and we don't understand. So I can't imagine what it's like to come in as a victim of sexual assault mm. and not, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what's next necessarily. Can you help me? Tell so me. So that was even like with the cars and things. I don't, um, you know, we had police cars. So I said to Narelle on the way down, I can still remember the man at Dawson Street. He said to me, you'll never get playing cars for the CPS. I said, you watch this space. <laughs> and I think when we got them, I think he was as excited as what but I was. tell him why. Yeah, why, you, why do you yeah. think it's more important to have playing car- because cars? Because why would you want to drive in a police car, pull up at someone's house in a police uniform and get out and have every man and his dog asking why you're there? Yeah. Or even going into schools. Or anything. Why would you do that? And why would... Why would anyone ever think that it was right? And I think there were a lot of things where I thought, why did anyone ever think that that was all right? What that was never all right, you know, with police cars, plain clothes. That that's People common thought sense they were to in me. Trouble. Um, yeah. It was yeah. the same as when, um, you know, as I said when I spoke about, and that's a whole different thing, I suppose, in going from dual track child protection to single track child protection. So suddenly there was duties that were taken from police, women police, women police divisions, community policing squads that they'd been used to, that were now handed to another government agency. So of course there was going to be a lot of because you had police working with social workers. So what we had at Broadmeadows was that police members would go to Department of Human Services and work for a couple of weeks and social workers would come to the community policing squad just so that everybody got a good understanding of what you should be doing. And so they're not working against each other? No, you're working with each other. So then to further enhance that would say, well, then meet socially. So on a Friday night, get together and have a chat so that if you've got something to discuss in the ensuing weeks, you're actually talking to a face. Very important that you're talking to people, not processes and things like that. So to me, they were just things that were common sense things. But um, also, Lorraine, you were always so... Lorraine was always victim-oriented. It was all about the victim, wasn't it? That was your passion, was the victim. Is the victim being looked after? Does the victim know what's happening? Um, does the victim need a break? The victim's been in there... Uh, you know, for an hour, what about taking her out out for a coffee or him out for a coffee? Like, it was all about the victim, Has wasn't it? And yeah. we can see so clearly how that's influenced your your policing, Narelle. Yeah. Always victim-focused. But also the way that you handle have handled perpetrators. A lot of people comment on the respectfulness with which you talk about it. doesn't mean you like them. doesn't mean... Don't have to be my best friend. No, but, but you have the ability and... and the great coppers do, don't they? You have the ability to still to speak to somebody with respect, even if you hate what they've done, in order to get out of them. I think it's called empathy, where yeah. you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and think, you know, these people have had, uh, like Cody, I'm yeah. not making excuses for what no. he's done, but what a shitful life that, I was yeah. going to say poor young man, but God, the family of the mm. woman he murdered. But... Um, 
put yourself in in their shoes just for a minute, a bit like Lorraine, I feel very um, lucky. Oh, lucky's the wrong word. Um, my upbringing, I've I've had love and support my whole and kindness my whole life, mm. and I think when people don't have that, I think you poor thing, like. It makes a big difference, doesn't it, Lorraine? Like yes. just to have that love and support. And you have that, um, I'm the same, you have that confidence that people care about you and can guide you. A lot of it for me comes back in the way that I was brought up and and having an understanding that not everybody grew up with, like yeah. me. So I grew up as the youngest of five, mum and dad, um, very much the role models. And I can remember someone saying to me once, you're very old-fashioned, and I said, well, I'll choose well-balanced over old-fashioned, but you can call me old-fashioned, but I choose myself as well-balanced. And so I had mum and dad. Um, you know, mum, it was just the age-old role model. Mum didn't work. Mum was at home and away we went and, you know, dad was dad and, you know, dad might have been the head of the house, but mum was the neck that ruled the head. So there was, <laughs> do you know, it was all that. You know, I remember watching that movie and thinking, that's my mum and dad. Like, certainly, you know, ask mum, mum would say, ask dad, and dad would say, have you asked your mum? You know, I remember clearly saying to mum, yeah, I'll join the police force, I'm 13, don't want to get married, I'll marry someone who's got children. So I've got three stepchildren from two marriages. God, um, you're psychic as well on top no, of everything no, else. But it was just, it's just being clear and, like, happy to stand by what your convictions are. Just, I can't do yeah. both of them. Some people can, I can't do yeah. both. I can't do something 100% and then try and do so I can't. And for people who can, I think, good on you. Julia Fantastic. Gillard said that. Yeah. Julia Gillard said that but about... But I, yeah. I can't. And, and, and so I'm happy being the aunt and the great aunt and go to netball and happy being that person. Um, and you read to the kids at school. She oh, goes <laughs> to the local school and reads to them. Yes. She ta- and also... And she also, you know, takes um, a girlfriend's mum out for a coffee. Like, that's just... Lorraine just shares so much of herself, but, but that's what she do. was like as a boss. Other people yeah. do that too. Lots of other people do that too. Oh, you have, yeah. to, you have yeah. to pay it forward. You have a responsibility to... And if, and if you were to wind it up in, in saying about a life or having an impact and stuff like that, that if, if you go back to one focus, I think someone said, oh, what's the, you know, the word, something that you remember... And that single thing for me um, would be an impact on me would be the loss of my sister at an early age because I have a responsibility to live life as well as I can because she never got the chance. It, it, we're all motivated by by something. Mm. So you consciously think, and every now and then I do, don't we all? I thought, I think, oh, I wonder what mum and dad would think. Dad would say, you're still like a fly in a new toilet, you land and then you go because you've got to find something. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's what he'd say to me as a child. <laughs> Oh my God. Like, hey, mommy, flying and you, honey. Oh, wow. So I say, because you land and you go and you land and you go. <laughs> so because you've got to be thinking. Did you, you find out as a family, did you know what, what killed your sister? Was it a mystery? Oh, it's a heart disease that just keeps on giving right through the family. So, but, you know, other, there's, there's many, many sad things. So, yeah, um, yeah there's, there's, yeah. Before you go, do you share your scone recipe or is that like oh, a Oh, it's an secret? easy one. I, no, I stole it from a lady at a kindergarten with my great-nephew. He took me for his very important person day. Three cups of self-raising flour, a cup of cream and a cup of lemonade. Now, lemonade. The lemonade. You yes. do my, the lemonade. My dad does the lemonade yeah. and the don't who, need it too much, he no, says. No, you don't, don't need it too it. much. And the man who did our fences, he did our fences because I said to him, I'll make scones for you from wing tea. And he was interested because he and his daughter have scone cooking recipe compete against each other. Don't you meet some fascinating people? And he couldn't work out mine because he uses soda water in his. 
So he said, yours is a touch sweeter than mine. And I said, that will be the lemonade. But what he also told me was um, room temperature. So keep your lemonade in the cupboard. And also, what about the silver, the knife? It has to be um, a silver knife, doesn't it? No, a wooden spoon. Don't use a knife. (gasps) I've been using the knife. Oh, Narelle. But then someone else will probably tell you something different. (laughs) Hey, just on on finishing, you know we were talking about privilege? Yeah. Yeah. I feel very privileged to have worked under Lorraine at Broadie. That's privilege. I feel privileged that you both came. Thank yes. you so much, Narelle, for persuading Lorraine to come. I got some parenting tips too, and I'm so loving it. I'm like, yes. <laughs> what about when I need Lorraine them. knocked back our invitation? We were like, oh God, please, oh please. I said, leave it with please. me. I'll get it. Please no, tell us. It's so not nice. that interesting. It's not that. It's not that interesting. No, she's not interesting not at all. all. No, sure. no, no, no. I, I knew that. So mm. boring. It's been such a boring hour. Yeah. <laughs> I've oh. learned. I've learned nothing. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you. That was awesome. It's a wrap. Oh, my God. And we'll get Joan. This has been another production in conjunction with the ACAST Creator Network. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.